Well, as you're taking your seat, let me invite you to grab your Bibles and turn them open to John chapter 15, to the passage our friend Jody just read for us, John chapter 15. We're we're continuing uh, our slow stroll through a portion of John 15, which is what we've been doing all summer long, just taking a couple of verses at a time, walking through this remarkable passage that speaks to the essence of the Christian life. And what we've been saying is that the, the essence of the Christian life isn't about you and I trying to live for Christ. As we've seen over the past few weeks, trying to live for Christ can wear us out, it can wear us down. It is exhausting, and quite frankly, it is impossible. The calling of the gospel on our lives isn't so much to try to live for Christ. The calling of the gospel in our lives is to learn how to live in Christ, that we have been united to Christ by the Holy Spirit that he has given to us. And it is this union, it is this connection that produces fruit in our lives, the fruit of gospel character and the fruit of gospel influence as God's life and his spirit is pulsating through his people. So in the first eight verses of John chapter 15, we've been looking at this image, this metaphor that illustrates that. As Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me and I in you. Whoever abides in me, he or she will bear much fruit. And so we have been resting in that imagery over the past few weeks, and now we're turning, our, uh, turning the corner into verse 9, where Jesus kind of moves from illustrating the truths that he's communicating to he's now explaining it. It says that he's a great teacher who communicates the same thing in a bunch of different kinds of ways. The first eight verses, he uses a picture. He uses the image of, of vine and branches. And now in verse 9, he's going to explain that imagery to us. He's not going to leave it up to us to interpret necessarily. He's going to clarify so that you and I can know for sure what the vine and the branches, what abiding in Christ is all about. And so to kind of kickstart our time in this passage today, I just want to start with a little trivia. You know, movies and books have some remarkable, uh, have produced some remarkable and memorable moments where two people share and express their love for each other. Uh, We see it on movies all the time. We read it in books all the time. A a man loves a woman and how he expresses it in a unique, profound way. You you see it in movies and books between parents when parents express their love to their kids in unique ways, in memorable, impressionable ways. And so I want to start tonight just by giving you a little trivia, uh, having a little contest. I've got a series of of scenes from movies and books that I'm going to share with you. And you have the joy of participating by telling me where it's from. Now, if you happen to be the person who's able to get all of these right, we're only going to judge you a little bit. Uh, We won't judge you a lot about knowing every single one of these references. But don't let that scare you. Jump on in and share with me what you're thinking. The first one is this. There was a woman who saw a man that she loved, and she said, I love you. And in response, he looked at her and said, I know. What's that from? That's Han Solo from Star Wars, right? Only Harrison Ford could pull that off, right? To, to respond that way and yet still get the girl in the movie, that, that's the only way that could go down. Here's another one. man walks into a living room and he, and he speaks across the room in front of some onlookers to the object of his affection. And he says, you complete me. What is that? That's Jerry Maguire. That's my least favorite one on this list. But that was one I had to, had to put in. Here's another one. This one may be a little bit harder. A guy speaking to a girl that's the object of his affections who tends to forget a lot of things. He says, I love you very much, probably more than anybody could love another person. I love you very much, probably more so, probably more than any person, anybody could love another person. Any guesses? It's a harder one. She can't remember things, so he has to tell her a lot. 
50 first dates, that's it, 50 first dates. All right, here's another one. This is for the, the, more, the, the readers among us. I wish I had done everything on earth with you. I wish I had done everything on earth with you. Got it? No? This would be from the great Gatsby. The great Gatsby. I wish I had done everything on earth with you. Here's my personal favorite. I would rather share one lifetime with you than face all the ages of this world alone. From the greatest story ever written in the Western canon. I would rather share one lifetime with you than face all the ages of the world, of this world. The Lord of the Rings. There you go. Well done. Well done. And now here's another one. This is a book. I've come here with no expectations, only to profess, now that I'm at liberty to do so, that my heart is and always will be yours. She's a treasure of a novelist. Jane Austen, which one? Close. It is Sense and Sensibility. I think in every service today, somebody has said Pride and Prejudice. But yeah, close. It was Sense and Sensibility. And now the final one, Father speaking to his son, I love you 3,000. Avengers Endgame. Come on, people. Where are you at? <laughs> Avengers Endgame. I love you 3,000. Now, in verse 9 of John chapter 15, how do I turn that? In verse 9 of John chapter 15, we have one of the deepest declarations of love that you will ever hear. It's one of the most profound, memorable, and impactful declarations and expressions of love that exists in the entire Bible. It's such a stunning statement that if it wasn't written in the Bible, I wouldn't believe it. Jesus looks at his disciples as he's getting ready to leave this world. He's preparing them for life after he is gone. And he's saying goodbyes and he's discipling them for what life will be like when that happens, saying, look, when I return, it's going to be good for you. I'll give you my Holy Spirit and he's, he's going to help you. He's going to enable you. He's going to empower you. He's going to keep you connected to me, but, but I will physically no longer be with you. But listen to what he says in verse 9. Looking at his disciples, he says, I want you to, as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. That's one of the most stunning statements that you will read in all of the scriptures. Jesus is comparing his love for us to the love that he shares with his father. Now, that is a deep statement. And there's lots of things that could be said about that. We cannot cull the depths of that statement in one time together tonight. So I just want to give you a few thoughts on what type of love Jesus is talking about. What type of love does he have for us that, that he also has from the Father? Why would he look at that as the mirror for his affections, for his, for his disciples, for his people? Well, one, this is an eternal love that he's talking about. This is what makes it so profound. It's an eternal love because Jesus is talking about the love that he shared with the Father from before the foundation of the world. You know something about who God is when you come to realize that God is triune, that God has eternally existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And for all of eternity, God the Father has loved God the Son, and God the Son has loved God the Father, and the Holy Spirit has shared in that revelry as a community of love existed within the Godhead. This remarkable, eternal love is somehow connected to the love that Jesus has for us. So I want you to think about the nature of an eternal love. To say that you are loved with an eternal love means that you are loved with the type of love that time and space cannot touch. By definition, eternal love exists beyond the crippling confines of time and space. It is not subject to entropy. 
It is not subject to decay. This type of love doesn't wear down. This type of love doesn't wear out. This type of love is eternal. It always is, and it always is operating in its fullest capacity. And so Jesus is saying, as a father has loved me, so I love you. I love you with a kind of love that time and space cannot touch. And if time and space can't make me tired in the love that I have for you, then you can rest assured that you are loved eternally. Time and space can't wear the love of Jesus down. It can't wear the love of Jesus out. This means you and I are loved perfectly forever and always. Paul would say as much in Ephesians chapter 1 when he's talking to the church. And he says, look, that before the foundation of the world, before time and space was created, God predestined to adopt you as sons and to adopt you as daughters. This is an eternal love. This means that you are loved despite what happens to you in time and space. What you do in time and space cannot affect or deplete or defeat the love that Jesus has for you. It's an eternal, an eternal love that we want to let our hearts just rejoice in tonight. But not only is it an eternal love, think also about the love the Father has for the Son. When you look at the story of Jesus, you discover that it's an affirming love. You remember at the beginning of his life in ministry when he started going public with the kingdom, when he started declaring that the kingdom of God is at hand and he began to heal people and, and proclaim the gospel of the kingdom and do all the things that he was doing, one of the first things that happened to Jesus is that he was baptized. So he went to his cousin John the Baptist as a way of saying, look, I've come to identify with humanity. I've come to fulfill all righteousness, to do everything right. And so I want to be baptized. And so he goes to John the Baptist and he asks for that. And John the Baptist takes him into the waters and and he lowers Jesus down, placing him under. And then as he's coming up out of the water, we're told in Matthew chapter 3 that a voice from heaven cried out. And that voice said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That's affirming love. That's God the Father affirming who Jesus is. That's God the Father affirming that he is well pleased with the son. Now think about it. That happened at the beginning of Jesus' life in ministry. This means that everything that as Jesus lived before his father and he served people and loved people and taught about the kingdom, this means when Jesus began to face hardships and rejection by people, what was echoing in his brain the whole while was this affirming love, was knowing that he was the father's beloved son and that with him the father was well, was well pleased. This was an affirmation that Jesus needed to know because Jesus would experience a lot of hardship over the course of his life. We are told that Jesus, there were times when he had no place to lay his head, essentially he was homeless. We see constantly people coming to Jesus, not so much because they love Jesus and want Jesus, but because they're impressed by the things that Jesus can do. You remember the crowd that came for feeding, and Jesus took the five loaves and the three fish, and he broke the bread, and he multiplied the fish, and he fed the multitude. In the very next passage, Jesus talks about how that was really good, but what that signified was how he wanted people to come feast on him, that he would be their bread, that he would be their life, that he would be their sustenance. And as he started talking in, that, in those terms, the people turned and walked away. They rejected Jesus. They didn't want Jesus. They wanted the types of things that Jesus could do. And so imagine what, would, what might have run through Jesus' mind, the insecurities that could have swelled up if he wasn't assured of the affirming love of his father. 
Or you think about his best friend, one of his closest friends, well, Peter, who would deny him the night he was uh, arrested and tried and eventually crucified. You think about Judas, a guy that he poured into for over three years, and he's betraying Jesus, turning his back on Jesus. You think about the religious officials who conspired to crucify Jesus and the Roman officials who approved of his execution. What enabled Jesus to move in that direction? If, if he wasn't affirmed in the love of the Father, chances are he might not have made it. So this affirming love of the Father is, was given to Jesus And it was tied to who he was at the beginning of his ministry. It wasn't necessarily tied to the things that Jesus would do. That's kind of what the affirming love of God looks like in our lives. You see, when you put your faith in Christ, you are united with Christ. And you are now in Christ, as we've been talking about. And now, every time the Father looks at you, what does he say? Well, he says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased. The affirming love of God given to everyone who finds themselves in Christ. So you can live affirmed. You can live loved. You can know this about you even when the world is against you. You can know this about you even when sin and sickness and suffering and even death creeps up onto the doorstep of your life and begins to assault your life. You can Engage those moments and experience those hard realities with the awareness that you are loved by God, that you are a beloved son and a beloved daughter in Christ. The affirming love of God is a remarkable, a remarkable love. And so I think there's a little bit of that in this passage. As a father has loved me, so I am loving you. But not only is it an affirming love, we would also say that this type of love is an exalting love. It's an exalting love. And here's what I mean by this. The father willed to execute the son. Isaiah 53, 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush Jesus. So if you think about the crucifixion of Jesus, you might wonder, well, does God really love him? As he's dying on the cross, a death that in the first century was only awarded to the worst of the worst in society, those who were believed to be cursed, those who would be put to shame in that type of execution, yet we are told that the father willed the son's execution. So if it was the father's will to kill Jesus, then how is this exalting love that, we, that the father had for the son? Well, you know that the father didn't kill the son to leave him dead. You know that, yes, he willed to execute the son, but he executed the son so that he could exalt the son, so that he could resurrect the son, and the son could ascend and take his seat at the right hand of the throne of the Father, so that Jesus might ascend and be exalted on high, that he might be enthroned. This is what we're told in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, after the death of Jesus and the obedience of Jesus is described, we're then told in Philippians 2, verse Nine, for this reason, it is for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. It is an exalting love to say, yeah, Jesus, you're going to be executed, but don't sweat it. I'm not going to leave you there. It's an exalting love that says, yes, though you suffer greatly, you will be exalted highly. And there is something here for you if you're suffering as a Christian. We are told in more ways than one all throughout the New Testament that God has a way of of bringing good from bad stuff. 
We're told in the book of 2 Corinthians that God is, in, in the midst of all of our afflictions, God is hammering out an eternal weight of glory. What is that? That's exaltation. We're told in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, where Peter, the guy, one of the guys who would have heard Jesus' words in John 15, who would have been affirmed that he is loved the way the Father loves the Son, in 1 Peter, he's writing to a group of Christians who are suffering a lot. And they are suffering in a bunch of ways. They may be insecure, questioning, well, what's happening to my life? Will I be defeated in this world? Am I going to make it to the end? Because everything seems to be standing against me in this world. And yet Peter writes that letter to say, hey, remember, God is sovereign. Remember, God is good. Remember, God is for you, not against you. And he comes to this moment at the end of his letter in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. He says, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered just a little while. That's exalting love. That's saying that your sufferings are not going to defeat you. You have a God who can bring good through evil, bring good through bad. You have a God who is hammering out an eternal weight of glory in the midst of our afflictions in this life. This is exalting love. This is the type of God we can trust when all hell is breaking loose around us. This is the God that we can trust in a world like this. A God of exalting love who says, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to resurrect you. I'm going to bring you into my presence. I'm going to, there's a, there's the New Testament talks about how Christians are actually going to be glorified. Of course, we're not going to be glorified in the same way as Jesus, but we're going to be glorified in a very similar way as Jesus. I'll let your brain hold on to that one for a little while. But it's the exalting love of the Father. These are just a few examples of the type of love that Jesus is encouraging his disciples with in this passage, saying, look, as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. A stunning, stunning statement. But then he continues. He continues to go and at the end of verse 9, he continues to talk about, or he transitions. He shifts from talking about this love to talking about something that we don't often equate with love, and that's the word obedience. Listen to what he says. He says, remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my father's commands and remain in his love. So Jesus keeps talking to bring about a significant clarification because he knows how the human heart is wired. The human heart oftentimes disorders love and obedience. We tend to think in our relationship with God that in order to be loved by God, we must obey God. And so we put obedience in the front seat and and we obey God so that he might love us. But Jesus here is turning the tables on that mentality. He's saying, no, love comes first. As a father has loved me, so I have loved you. I love you with an eternal love, with an affirming love, with an exalting love. I love you. And then he starts talking about obedience. Because Jesus knows the difference between religion and the difference between, the, well, the difference between the religion and gospel. The religious human heart says, I'm going to obey God so that he might love me. The gospel in the human heart says, no, God loves me, therefore I'm going to obey. And this is what Jesus is getting after when he says, remain in my love. He's talking about obedience. Now, that phrase, remain in my love, or to abide in the love of God, that can sometimes be misconstrued. And sometimes we say, okay, I'm abiding in God's love, and what that means for me, the image that comes in is I'm going to I'm going to cozy up next to a warm fire. I'm going to get a really comfy bank blanket and a cup of coffee, and I'm just going to abide there. I'm going to sit there. I'm just going to enjoy that moment, and it'll make me feel good. It'll make me warm and cozy and comfortable. 
But when Jesus talks about remaining in his love in this moment, he's not talking about being static. He's not talking about being self-centered. He's talking about being obedient. Jesus equates abiding with obeying. Obeying and abiding are the same thing. So to remain in his love means to live in light of the fact that we are love, which means we take into consideration all that God desires. And we try to honor God with everything that we are, not because we have to, but because we want to in light of the love that he has given us in and through Jesus. So abiding and obeying are the same thing. There was a guy by the name of Philip Yancey who was talking to a woman in his church and this woman was wrestling with uh, some, this is, some distorted desires in her heart. She told him that her husband did not measure up and that she was actively looking for another man who could meet her, her needs for intimacy. And in the course of the conversation, she talked about how she abided in God's love, how she's been hanging out with God. She says, you know, I spend time with the Father at least one hour every day. And so Philip Yancey looked at her in response and asked the question, well, in your meetings with the Father... Do any moral issues come up that might influence this pending decision about leaving your husband? And Susan bristled. She got angry. And she said, well, that sounds like the response of a white Anglo-Saxon male. The father and I are in relationship, not morality. Relationship means being wholly supportive and standing alongside me, not judging. How does that jive with what Jesus is saying in John 15? Is our relationship with God really all about relationship and have nothing to do with morality? Does being loved by God means that he's just going to support us no matter what decisions we're making? He's just going to support us despite the fact that we might do things that, are, that go against the grain of his word and are not in line with his commands? Well, if we're hearing Jesus correctly, her heart is distorted She's deceived in that moment. And if you ever find yourself in a position where you are justifying your disobedience by appealing to your relationship with God or the love that God has for you, and yet you're going full tilt in the direction that would be considered sinful, you are deceived too. Your heart is distorted in that moment. And so you have to come back to the passage and think well about the gospel and what Jesus is saying. He's, look, I love you, and your obedience flows out of the fact that I love you, but obedience should come. Remaining in my love, abiding in my love, inhabiting that relationship, it leads to obedience. This is what he is saying. He goes on. He says, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love, He's saying this is what abiding, this is what remaining is all about. Abiding is obeying. Remaining is obeying. It's honoring God. But but be careful. Don't get it twisted in your heart. Don't think that your obedience, that God's love for you is dependent upon your obedience. Instead, remember that it is God's love that awakens and enables and empowers your obedience. I'll illustrate it this way. My daughter Delaney, who's eight now, when she was three, she loved it when I would read her stories, and oftentimes I would come and I would read her stories, and her favorite story for a while was Sleeping Beauty, and so every night she'd come to me and say, hey, Dad, look, can we read Sleeping Booty? She couldn't say it very well. She'd just say Sleeping Booty, and it was really cute, 
but then around Halloween, she asked if she could be Sleeping Booty, and I didn't think that was cute anymore, so I was against that, that costume. And so I said, yeah, Delaney, we can read Sleeping Beauty anytime you want. And so we would go, and you're familiar with the story, no doubt. You know that the story is told of Princess Aurora. And Princess Aurora is cursed, and she falls into a death sleep that she can't wake herself from. She's utterly helpless. The only thing that can break the curse in her life is the kiss coming from true love. And every time we'd get to that point in the story where the kiss was starting to come and true love was going to fall upon sleeping beauty, Delaney would pull the covers above her head and start giggling sheepishly. That was cute, but I hated that too. It just, it's just not a, it's not a fun moment as, as a dad. But then true love's kiss would fall upon her, and the moment it did, it would awaken her. Her eyes would open. She'd see the face of, of, of her hero in that moment and fling her arms around his neck, and new life would begin. Well, that's the story of the gospel, essentially. As a result of sin, it has put you into a death sleep. Sin has, has rendered us, in a sense, spiritually unconscious. And the only thing that can break the curse of sin, the curse of Satan, the curse of death on our life is true love. And the gospel says that true love has come. It has come through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That Christ kissed us from the cross. And when he kisses us from the cross and we're putting our faith in him, our eyes wake and new life is created. We see the love of our Savior and we fling our arms around his neck and we follow him into a new life. And as we experience that and that love awakens us and changes us and redeems us and rescues us, obedience is going to follow. Why? Well, it's really hard to be loved that well and not be changed by that kind of love, right? That kind of love is going to affect you. Believing the gospel changes you. Love leads to obedience. This is what Jesus is getting after. He says, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. You will enjoy my love. You will experience my love. You will be in the arena of my love. You will flourish by keeping my commands. Now, I know as Christians, sometimes the word command can hit us the wrong way, and we don't like it. We don't like talking about commands, being told what to do or what not to do. And, and unfortunately, we haven't done a good job in the church of helping Christians understand the beauty of God's commands. And so when you think about these commands that Jesus is referring to, commands like love your neighbor as yourself, commands like love your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, commands like do not steal, commands like do not look lustfully upon a woman who is not your wife, you think about these commands, I want you to think about them well. So I want to give you three thoughts about the commands that you need operating in your mind every time you approach the scriptures. Every time you think about God's commands and your obedience, there are three ways you want to, at least three ways that you want to think about these commands. The first is this. You need to understand that God's commands are not a burden, but a blessing. Believe it or not, God's commands of his people, they are not burdens, they are blessings. John, the same writer of John 15, would write in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. Listen to what he says. He says, for this is what love of God is. Or love for God is to keep his commands, and his commands are not a burden. So why are not, why, how could he say that? Well, he can say God's commands are not a burden to me because I'm not, because my obedience to these commands don't determine my relationship with God. My obedience to these commands are a reflection of my relationship with God. 
So I'm obeying these commands not because my soul's at stake. I'm obeying these commands because my soul is alive. And when you experience the love of the Savior, what happens is obedience becomes something desirable. Obedience is something that you want to do. And you're no longer interpreting God's commands as burdens. You can see them as blessings. Or to put it another way, if you are going to flourish in the life that God created you to live, you need the borders, you need the boundaries of his, of his commands. Illustrate it this way. Consider, I've given this analogy numerous times. I'll give it again. A fish in a fishbowl. Imagine a fish swimming in a fishbowl, and he can see through the glass of his container the open space outside, and imagine him thinking, man, I would have a lot more freedom if I wasn't restricted, if I didn't have the borders of this bowl keeping me here. And so the fish says, I want to be free, and freedom looks like the space outside. And so he starts swimming really fast, plops himself out of the bowl, lands onto the floor. Is, th- is things going to go well for that fish? Of course not. That fish isn't going to flourish on the floor. That fish is going to flounder. The only place that fish can flourish is in the confines of his container. The only way he can flourish is if he's in the water in his bowl. The only way you and I can really flourish as human beings, flourish in the life that God created us to live and the gospel has redeemed us to live, is if we recognize that the boundaries, the borders of God's command, that's actually where we are free to flourish. And so obedience becomes blessing because obeying God's commands leads to flourishing. It leads to life. It leads to joy. It leads to an experience of the love of God that isn't necessarily earned, but that is in line with the love that he has for you. So every time you read the New Testament and you come across a command that's speaking to some moral issue, here's what you need to ask yourself. With every command that you read in the scriptures, ask what good thing is being protected by this command? What good thing is being protected? What positive stands behind the negative? So, for example, what good thing do you think God's protecting you from when he says, do not look at a woman with lustful intent? What good thing do you think God is protecting when he says, I want you to flee from sexual immorality? Well, I'm sure you know the dangers and the spiraling effects that pornography and lust can have on the human psyche and the way that it can deteriorate our respect for the image of God that is surrounding us and how it can affect society in some terrible ways. I mean, why is the Me Too movement even a thing? Well, it's because lust is running rampant. Lust is unchecked. It doesn't have the border of God's commands. There is no obedience to what God has done, so it creates the type of society that's hypersexualized as the one that we are living in now is. And so you want to ask, okay, what good thing is being protected by this command? What positive is resting behind the negative? Instead of just pushing back against the Bible, Dive into it and think well about the commands that God has given us. How can that contribute to life? How can, it can, how can his commands contribute to flourishing? When you get there and you start thinking along those lines, that's when his commands are going to be seen as blessings, not burdens. Second thing, you need to understand that God's commands are a reflection of his character. Every command that God gives his people, as it relates to the moral law All of these commands are a reflection of his character. This means that if you and I ever disregard his commands, we are essentially disregarding the one that we claim to love. That's what's really going on there. 
We want to put God's commands over here and his character over here, and we don't always see how his commands are a reflection of who he is. So a lot of times, the positive behind the negative in a command is, well, what does this say about God? And when you start saying, okay, well, this says something great about who God is, therefore I want to obey this because I want to reflect that. Because his commands are a reflection of his character, and I want to show the world what God is like. So why do you want to be faithful to your spouse? Why do you want to be faithful to your spouse? Sure, it's because you love your spouse, but is there an even deeper reason? Could it be because that in your faithfulness, you get to reflect the faithfulness of God who is always faithful to his spouse? Why do you want to obey his command not to steal? Could it be because you want to reflect to the world that your God's got you? Your God's going to take care of you? Your God is providentially involved in your life and he's going to meet your needs? You can say things about who God is through observing and obeying his commands. So God's commands are a reflection of his, a reflection of his character. There's a guy by the name of Gustav Dore. I don't know if that's how you say it, but he works for uh, DreamWorks. He's on the artist, artistic development team. And, and one day, a guy that he was training and kind of discipling in their job and in some of the artistic creations that they were making brought him a painting of Jesus. And he looked at this guy's painting of Jesus, and it just didn't sit with him well. It kind of bothered him, and he was just like, what? I can't put to words why this painting bothers me the way that it does. And, and then he realized what it was, and he handed the painting back to him, and he said, well, if you loved Jesus more, you would have painted him better. If you loved Jesus more, you would have painted him better. Well, there's a sense in which through our obedience, we get to paint pictures of who God is and what God is like to the watching world. And so the reason we want to paint him well is because we love him deeply. Now, if we don't love him, it doesn't matter. But if we do love him, if there is love in your heart for the God who created you and the God who sent Jesus to save you, then I believe there's a desire deep down inside for you to paint him well to the watching world, to present a portrait that would cause people to draw near to the reality of your God. And then the third dynamic is Believe it or not, God's commands, as you come across these in scriptures, as you try to keep these commands, God's commands actually can be obeyed. I don't know if you believe that, but God's commands actually can be obeyed. And the reason why they can be obeyed is because you have the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of you. You have the same presence, the same power, the same person inside of you that was inside of Jesus. Now, you know that Jesus lived the life of perfect obedience. He obeyed all of God's commands perfectly and fully and in a way that's never to be repeated by any other human being. And sometimes you think about Jesus' obedience, and we want to view him as kind of like uh, Superman disguised as Clark Kent. And we think, okay, well, he had an advantage over us because he was God. So anytime he really needed to obey, he could just pull back his shirt, show his God chest, and tap into that and be obedient. But I want to show you a passage in Philippians chapter 2 that may change how you think about Jesus' obedience. It may even actually cause you to bring some hope into your desire to obey and to do the things that God is calling you to do. Philippians chapter 2, we looked at a portion of this passage a moment ago, but listen to what it says in verse 6. It says that Jesus, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited or as something to be taken advantage of. Instead, Jesus emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, and when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
So what is he saying there? He's saying that, yes, Jesus was fully God, but he did not take advantage of his divine nature when he was walking through this world. Everything Jesus did, he did in reliance upon the power of the Holy Spirit that had filled him up. And when he's talking to the disciples in chapters 14 of John all the way to chapter 17 of this portion of the gospel, he's talking time and time again about the Holy Spirit. And he's saying, look, I'm leaving, but it's going to be really good for you that I do because you're going to get what I've got. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. He's going to fill you up. The Holy Spirit's going to unite you with me, and he's going to energize and empower you in a way that can lead to obedience. So it is possible for you and I to obey God's commands. We can say no to sin. We can say yes to service. We can say yes to making disciples. We can say yes to forgiving our enemies. We can say yes to, to loving our enemies and forgiving those who sin against us. We can do those things because the Holy Spirit is at work within us. And as we grow and as we mature, we find ourselves experiencing more of that. So we can obey God's commands. It is possible, believe it or not, because we have the Holy Spirit. But there's one other dynamic in this passage. Not only is it possible because you have the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of you, you've been given the promise of future joy. This is what he's saying in verse 5. He says, I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Now think about this. What kept Jesus moving through the Garden of Gethsemane? Why didn't Jesus stop there when things got hard? I mean, he's in the garden, he's all by himself, he's sweating drops of blood, and he's praying through the will of his Father, and he says, look, God, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. Don't make me do what I need to do. If there's any other way, then let it happen. But in the end, he said what? He said, Father, not my will, but your will be done. He knew the cross was coming. He knew the shame of the cross. He knew the suffering of the cross. He knew what the cross represented for him. So he's weeping drops of blood. What kept him going? What kept him going, I believe, is stated in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. We are told that it was the joy that was set before Jesus that enabled him to endure the cross, despising its shame. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And we're told in Psalm in Psalm 90, I believe, that at the right hand of God, there are pleasures forevermore. What kept Jesus going in that moment was the promise of future joy. It was the joy that was set before him that enabled him to keep going and keep moving in obedience, even obedience to the point of death, death on a cross. The promise of future joy can enable and energize yours and my obedience to God. But it's very important that you realize that this joy is in front of us. This joy isn't necessarily behind us. This joy isn't, a lot of times, even right beside us when we have to make a choice. It's a joy that's in front of us. It's a joy that we must move towards. If it wasn't in front of us, then Jesus' statement in Luke chapter 9 might not make much sense. Where he says, if anybody's going to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Why is self-denial a thing? Why is cross-bearing a thing for the Christian? A lot of times, denying the self isn't very enjoyable. Cross-bearing hardly ever puts a smile on anybody's face. But we respond to Jesus in those ways because there is a joy in front of us. There is a joy that we are moving towards, but we're only going to get there when we deny ourselves 
and we take up our crosses. We're only going to get there when we submit and surrender to the will of the Father. And we say, Father, not my will, but your will be done. And we look to the joy that is set before us, and we move towards it in obedience. If you're waiting to be happy before you obey, you're never going to go anywhere. You have to look to the joy that's in front of you, the joy that's set before you, believing that, that, that God brings joy to the obedient. I've never met a joyful, disobedient Christian. Every disobedient Christian I meet, they may be happy for a season, but there's no real joy there. Chances are you've never met a joyful, disobedient Christian either because joy for the Christian comes through obedience because abiding is obeying, remaining is obeying. I was at Gasworks Park not too long ago, a few days ago with my son Asher, and and we've gone there a few times. They've put up a new structure, a new play structure. And there's this basically a spider rope web-looking thing that goes up fairly high that you can climb up. And Asher's always kind of sit on the side, and he's watched other kids climb up to the top. And I can see that he wants to, but he doesn't believe that he can. He's afraid of the height. He's not sure he can make it up. And at the top of the structure, there's a huge slide that comes down. And he's watching kids experience the exhilaration of coming down that slide over and over and over again. And he just doesn't believe he can do it. And I said, like, Asher... You can climb that structure. You, you can make it up there. I know you can. I'll be right here. But you, you can go. You can make it. He heard me, but I, he didn't really respond in that moment. So I just turned my attention on my sister. I began talking to her. And the next thing I know, Asher had wandered over to the structure. And when I looked back over, he climbed about halfway up. Now, you can tell he's nervous. You can tell he's a little fearful because his legs are shaking. And he's getting up higher. And he's never been up there before. And, and so I'm just like, so I look at Cal. I say, Callie, watch. And I said, he's never done this before. And he, and he starts making his way up the structure. And he finally makes it to the top. And he turns over his shoulder. And he, with a huge smile on his face, he, Asher's an open mouth smiler. He, he, <laughs> he, his, his mouth is always open when he's smiling. And so he's a big grin. And he's smiling, dad, dad. And he's waving at me. And, and I'm thrilled for him. But I'm thinking, put your hand back on the rope, right? <laughs> like, don't let go of that structure. And, and then I said, that's right. I said, great job, Asher. Now come down the slide. And he got real excited, and he grabbed the bar, and he kind of shot his way through and zipped on down and popped up with so much joy, a joy that he wouldn't have experienced had he not done the hard thing of climbing up, a joy that he wouldn't have experienced had he not done the hard thing of, of believing me, saying, Asher, you can do this. And so with my affirmation in his head, he climbed that structure, and he slid down experiencing great joy. The Christian life is a lot like that knowing that you are eternally loved by God, knowing that you are affirmed by God in Christ, knowing that there's an exalting joy, there's an exalting love waiting for you in the future, and you're aware of these realities, and so you start living in light of that. And so when you come to those moments in your life and you say, I don't know if I can say yes to this or no to that, I don't know if I can really move in that direction, all the while God's affirming, you're my beloved son, I'm well pleased with you in Christ, I'm for you, not against you, I'm going to take care of you, and so you step out and you do the hard thing, and on the other side of it, what is there? There's joy. There's the pleasure of knowing that you've honored your father. There's the pleasure of knowing that you've lived in light of the one who loves you like crazy. As you come to understand that the Christian life moves in this sequence of love, obedience, and joy. And so you give your life to that rhythm. Love, obedience, and joy. Love, obedience, and joy. Let's pray together.